hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here, and this is Indie Acquisitions, where we talk to people buying and building uh, wonderful companies. So today we actually have a guest, John Matziner. So welcome, John. You want to give a little intro? Sure. Yeah. So my name is John Matziner. I'm currently based in Southern California. I had a bit of a varied lead up to where I currently am. I was kind of within the national security community for better part of a decade, was living in Africa and the Middle East, and then kind of decided I want to move back to the States and read Walker D. Beale's book, Buy Then Build, and was like, that sounds fun, and just kind of started started chipping away at that and ended up, bought a couple kind of brick and mortar Main Street type companies, but most successfully this one now in Southern California that called Garage Excel, which I actually no longer run as of a couple of weeks ago, which is wonderful, which we can talk about and doing all sorts of interesting stuff after that. So that's a nice summary, I guess. Cool. Yeah. How'd you get into the acquisition space? Like, how'd you hear about it? How'd you do your first? I think I just like read buy them build or like one of, one of the HBS books, like buy a company. I'm sure you've seen it. Cause I know about you have your course. So just yeah. kind of, I, I, I tripped across it and just kind of like went down the rabbit hole. Like I'm sure a lot of kind of smart, younger, ambitious men and women do. They're just like, this sounds fun. This sounds more fun than, you know, working at a nameless, fameless, faceless kind of company, you know? And like for your first one, how'd you narrow in on what you wanted? I knew that I wanted to move back to Southern California just because I knew I, I, I say I knew I had high confidence that I could be fairly successful across kind of industries or whatever. You know, I'm like, I'm good at figuring stuff out broadly speaking. And I wanted to just live in a great place because I've lived in really crappy places. And so I figured San Diego is as good of a place as anywhere in the US. And so then I just kind of, you know, put a pin down and looked within 90 minutes of San Diego. And so it was really, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to that strategy, let's say, but certainly the fact that I get to live on the beach and surf in the morning is an advantage. So yeah, that's kind of how I got started. This yeah. geography. San Diego is like paradise. I was out there for a wedding like three weeks ago. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's it's nicer than Chicago. Yeah. So yeah. What was the first business you bought? You know, how'd you find it? So we bought a, I, I bought a couple randomly with some partners. It's not even worth mentioning. I wouldn't even call it like really buying them some stuff in Florida and some automotive stuff, which we've, I don't now don't own anymore, but so those are like technically my first ones, but my first real one, I would say was this company called Garage Excel in Southern California, kind of classic 75 year old baby boomer, you know, million bucks a year, made a good living, you know, was fast and loose with his books, let's say, you know, just like the normal kind of profile of these businesses. And this company called Garage Excel is 15 years old, you know, good margins. I liked the sector for a variety of reasons, mostly the work at home, work from home thing and could buy it at a really, really good value. And so kind of swept in and, and bought it. And since then have grown pretty aggressively. And now we're looking at kind of some more scalable moves within the garage upgrade space, rather than just the kind of brick and mortar version of it, in which I think we're probably going to talk about today. So. Yeah. I want to talk about your like anti-franchise stuff, but you know, back to that business, like sure. after you bought it, you know, it looks great from the outside. Like what were the issues and growing oh, it, you know, once you so actually got in there. Yeah. How much time you got? Yeah. You know, a ton. I mean, it wasn't, we didn't really buy a company. I mean, we bought, we bought a sector, we bought a crew, we brought a kind of some experience, so to speak, but it wasn't a company, <laughs> you know? So all the, all the challenges associated with that, but I mean, we bought it at such a, such a price that it was essentially worth it. And it was, it was nice. I didn't want to do the SBA 7A thing that kind of scared me, especially given that this business doesn't have recurrent or reoccurring revenue. So I didn't yeah. want to have this debt every month that is going to make me, you know, lose my hair. So, I mean, all sorts of different things from kind of professional, he was doing all the sales himself. So I had, we had to professionalize the sales process, had to professionalize our customer acquisition process in terms of, you know, big digital these days is, is kind of what we do. I know you, you know a lot about that as well. And then, you know, we had some cash flow stuff that almost buried us. 
because they were taking 10% upfront and 90% upon completion. And when you grow really fast, that is not how you want your working capital to have to work. Take that from experience. So we've, we've now fixed that, but those are all things that we kind of wrestled with in the beginning. Turnover, drunk employees. I mean, all the stuff you deal with when you, when you buy a small business. Yeah, it's a little different with uh, the online businesses. We don't have that quite as often, or at least we don't know about it. How did you structure the deal? If not, like, how did you finance it without a 7A loan? People are always Uh, interested to hear actually do it. Sure. So I went to a, essentially friends and family. I mean, not family, but it wasn't that much money. And then we did a big seller financing note with all sorts of reps and warranties and stuff like that. Uh, So yeah, we did seller financing and a little bit of cash from just kind of a network. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how we did it. And then how about on the growth end? Like what have you guys done for growth? What's worked? What's worked has been, you know, and before we acquired, you know, one of the ways that we liked the sector was the, the paid traffic was pretty underpriced given the average gross margin per sale. And so we looked at that before we even bought it and we're like, man, these clicks are only three bucks. Like I'm in, right? These should be 50 bucks. And so uh, we looked at that. And so we kind of professionalized our customer acquisition, a lot of Google, a lot of Facebook, some SEO stuff, kind of basics. Sales, we've kind of, built and professionalized our, our sales reps, our design folks, which has been kind of a process. I mean, when we bought the company, he didn't even have a definitive list of what he sold because he was a one-man show. He's like, I sell it if I think I can make money, right? And so yeah. it was like a skew for every product that we sell. We had to develop and commission packages and things like that. So did a lot of that and then a lot of backend stuff. So we do a lot of a kind of overseas support help and a lot of no-code stuff. So things like checklists, and we built an inventory process on the back of Airtable that's been pretty successful for us. So we just had to develop a lot of the stuff you do when you go from a one-man show to a company that does, you know, a couple million bucks a quarter. So, and then, so we could, you know, get into it. How do you think about growth beyond? It sounds like you're not opening more businesses. You're going this, you know, non-franchise franchise yep. route. Yep. So the way we're thinking about growth is in really two different ways. Well, the first was we kind of tried to grow kind of corporately, I would call it. And what we found was that when you get beyond, say, a hour and a half from your central facility, your problems and challenges and costs increase exponentially. Hmm. Just the nature of a radius around a certain central hub. There, there might be a way to crack, crack that code, but it's difficult and expensive and not really that worth it, right? So what we did was you know, kind of looked at... <clears throat> It's a wonderful business if you're operating within 90 minutes of a center point. Wonderful business. But mm-hmm. the minute that you go to farther than that, it just, the wheels fall off, right? So, <clears throat> so we looked at exploring what growth models that weren't relying on that look like. And we've basically landed on two that we're currently pursuing, one a little bit more energetically than the other. But one is an online-based direct-to-consumer thing that we can talk about. And then the other is this, this affiliate model, which again, we can talk about, but yeah, we, the reason why I'm not running garage Excel anymore, I'm not the CEO. I, what one of my team is because it's a lovely business, but it's not going to continue to grow like it did in the first 12 to 18 months. It's just, it, it just, it, it's hit its right size, let's say. And if I tried to make it its wrong size, it would just, it would just be more trouble than it's worth, frankly. Yeah. So that's always like the Holy grail, right? Everyone wants to hire an operator and remove themselves from the business. Like how'd you find this person? How do you incentivize them? Yep. So we, I knew I played rugby with this guy's dad in Dubai six or seven years ago. I met his son, him and I, he he was like a real estate agent at the time. 
And over the last five or six years, I brought him into a variety of ventures. And eventually we moved him to the US specifically to take over this company. So it wasn't like an Indeed post and two weeks later, I'm sick, sipping a margarita. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, a, it's a five or six year pipeline, but I've got absolute confidence in this dude because he's been kind of like a part of the family for five or six years and he's great. I mean, he can drive a forklift and, you know, mess around with Java, which is incredible. He's just a really bright, guy and he's 29 or 30. And hmm. so this is a great opportunity for him. So we give him some base salary, some incentives, and then we're giving him basically phantom shares based on any sort of liquidity event at the end. So yeah. Yeah. Nothing fancy. I mean, compared to the stuff, you know, I mean, it's, it's child's play compared to what, what you guys do, but for us, it works. So yeah, that's good. You know, it's so the growth, uh, I guess let's talk about the e-commerce thing first. Like what is, sure. what does that look like? Sure. So the e-commerce thing, it's actually built, it's on uh, organizedgarage.com. We're kind of been we built it. We haven't really bought any traffic or done any stuff yet. But um, in the kitchen space, there's three major players. There's the retailers like Home Depot and Costco, who just sell you the kitchen cabinets. Then there's the vertically integrated franchisees where they sell you the cabinets and they install them. But in the kitchen space specifically, there's this middle player, which is an online kitchen design studio hmm. where they design your kitchen online. They ship the cabinets to you and then a local contractor who you pay directly installs them. And it sits between the vertically integrated folks and just the retailers. There is no specific player in the garage space that does that. Hmm. So essentially that's, that's replicating a model that's worked very effectively in the kitchen and closet space, which is kind of online customer acquisition, online design and sale, ship them everything. And then a local contractor essentially hangs them, which is nice because it gets you out of the really, really execution intensive contracting end of the business and pushes that down to the customer and you pass along some of those savings to the customer. So that's the kind of e-com, you know, and obviously we have great economies of scale, right? I have the manufacturers, I have the facility, I have the products, I have the software to design them. So it seems like a very nice add-on. So. And how's it going? We're in the process of launching it now. Okay. So, I don't know. I'll let you know. <laughs> Early days. <laughs> yeah. I was doing, um, I was doing the pro forma this morning. So. Nice. And then, so you're probably best known on Twitter for this like anti-franchise franchise thing. You want to explain what that is? Sure. So the other way to grow a business like ours, when you've got these kind of really nice tight geographic unit economics, but they don't necessarily lend themselves to corporate ownership, let's say, is the franchise. And so we looked pretty closely at the franchise model. And I don't know how closely you've ever looked at it, Colin, but it, it, it kind of gives me the willies a little bit, you know, it's super, super regulated. Mm-hmm. It's very kind of top down. You know, it's kind of rules and territories and no, you can't feature that product because we have brand equity and, and those kinds of things. And it works really, really well in certain sectors like, you know, H&R Block, I think is a franchise or McDonald's or Starbucks. It's a great model for those. But in the home service sector, people would rather buy from a local company than a national. And so a national brand does not offer any advantage. Mm-hmm. And that is largely what you're paying for when you buy a home service franchise is to be able to call yourself a, you know, California closets or whatever it happens to be. But what we've seen in our business is that somebody would rather buy from Toronto Garage Upgrade Company than Garage Dreams headquartered in Austin, Texas, because they like that kind of local accountability, let's call it. And so when you don't have to do co-branding, it opens up a world of possibility in terms of association with these affiliates is what we're calling them, not franchisees, which is our first one in Connecticut is called the Garage Experience. And the engine under the hood is all us, but the brand is him. So he gets all the support of a franchise. If you go to thegarageexperience.com, I think the website's in the process of launching. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah, the garage experience. I think it's up. Um, 
he gets all of the support of a franchise without any of the rules and restrictions because there's no brand equity that I have to prevent. So I don't have to do territories. I don't have to tell him what he can and can't sell. I don't have to tell him he's not allowed to do M&A, you know, but the engine under the hood is all us. So he's, he's been able to de-risk it because we can tell him where, where the best customer acquisition channels are, you know, how to compensate his salespeople, how to pay crews, what software to use, all that stuff we gave him. And so he's been able to kind of shortcut the line in a franchise style, but without some of the franchise kind of, you know, wrappings or restrictions, maybe that's a better way to say it. What is like the definition of a franchise legally that makes you not a franchise? Yep. So there's a, generally speaking outside New York state, there's a three-part and, you know, a franchise lawyer, you know, if you paid a lawyer, they'd give you a hundred thousand dollars and they'd write your paper. I can give you the kind of business person's not legal advice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not legal. Yeah. There you go. Not legal advice. The big, it's a three-part test and all three have to be true. The first one is co-branding. So, and then I think the second one is like, you have to make money within six months. And then the third, I think is you're giving guidances to the operations of the business. Like you're, you're telling them like how and what they're allowed to do. So under our model, we, we meet two and three, but we don't meet one. And so it's really the co-branding that, that creates that kind of linkage. So on his site, he can't even say, for example, an affiliate of Garage Excel. There's no brand link at all, or else you start to create like what, what feels like a franchise. And it's, it's effectively a playbook or are you like very involved, you know, weekly calls or something like that? Yep. So it's, it's kind of a mix. So the way we make money three ways and upfront, which is essentially, we have a list here that I can share my screen and show you, but it's a bunch of one-time stuff. So it's like access to all of our content library that we've developed, hmm. you know, contracts, employment, you know, just kind of almost like online course stuff, right? Like a, it's just like this really big ass you know, we give them our a top converting landing pages, our top converting keywords, our top converting creative, like all the stuff you need to be pretty close. So that's the, the first way. And we charge like 20 G's for that. Then we have a bunch of voluntary shared services that are all like back office. So they can hire us to do their bookkeeping. They can hire us to answer their phone, kind of economies of scale stuff that, that we're well positioned to do that maybe some guy when he's first getting started, doesn't want to do himself. Yeah. I suggest that they don't do it themselves, right? They can lease the software from us, things like that. And then the third is we take 5% of the top line for life. And, you know, we kind of, we're very involved in these first couple because we want them to be successful. And over time, you know, we're doing things like we're cohorting them. So we're putting five affiliates in the same Slack channel and they're all talking and we're kind of help helping to guide and shape. And here's what we suggest and those kinds of things. But it's, it's like a, it's like a e-course on steroids rather than you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's almost like a mastermind, not, not quite. Yeah. The, the reason why I like positioning it against the franchise is because franchises cost a quarter of a million dollars, whereas online courses cost two G's. So I'd rather say, I'd rather price condition at franchise and go down than price condition at course and go up. There's so. yeah. There was like a old marketing tactic of like, always pick a villain and, you know, franchisees are, or franchisers are a nice villain for sure. And, and I think it also, it also lets you hang it against something. So it's like the Uber for plans. So it's like, yes. it's like the franchises, but without the rules, you know? So I think it allows a nice mental shortcut from all sorts of, you know, they, they understand that it's their business, not mine. When I describe it like that, for example, you know, how did you like, you could have taken this knowledge that you have and gone in all different directions. Like you could have done an asynchronous course. You could have sold it ad hoc. You yep. could have gone franchise. I mean, you like, how did, or cohort based course, I think is probably a common one that people do here or a mastermind. Like, how'd you arrive at this one, mm -hmm. this balance? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. You know, we could talk about it extensively. I have a couple of really bright partners who, you know, we debated this exactly like, hey, should we just package it up and sell it for five grand or, you know, 
So, you know, we had a couple of different things, which was we wanted to create enough value up front that we can get a big lump of cash up. It's not a big lump. I mean, a, a nice chunk of cash, let's say up front. We wanted to have exposure to royalties because of how lovely of a revenue stream that is. You know, it, it, it compounds and it's valued extremely well in any sort of subsequent fundraising or sales type scenarios. I mean, it's, it is a yeah. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful revenue source. And then the services we're doing mostly to protect it's, it, we do make some money on them, but we're doing it mostly to protect our investment because we do want these guys to be successful, not stressing out about their bookkeeping. I want them going out and growing their business so that they can pay me royalties for 50 years. So that's kind of how we landed on it. Cause I didn't want to just sell a course because, you know, and I know this from the garage business, I'm, I'm looking for for, you know, sell once, make money more like soft, you know, versions of software, right? Which is I'm looking for something that has some sort of avalanche effect, network effects, you know, all those things that you look for in a business and without exposure to any sort of ongoing revenue or profit sharing or ownership, it's just kind of like, look, I sell these things until people aren't interested. And then what the hell do I have for it? Whereas in this scenario, and I didn't want to own equity because equity in a small business like this, a brick and mortar business is kind of bleh. You know, yeah. it's like, then I got to get involved in governance and I was like, yeah, just give me a couple of points. So, and I know the margins, so I know it's not going to put them out of business by giving me five points. So, and like, how are you finding these people or who are these people that are you know signing up? Yeah. So it's pretty much been, it's a great Twitter pitch. You know, it's, it's, I think I heard you talking about buying traffic for your course. I think it's the exact same thing, which is I've had people come on who are like, I'm sold now. Let's just talk about details because I don't think I could do that if I was buying Facebook traffic saying, you know, launch a garage up, you know, there'd be this long drip campaign sequence and building value and webinars. Whereas because, you know, I'm, I, I don't post a ton, but I post enough that kind of people know who I am. So when I kind of throw something up, there's a high degree of trust. And so, you know, it, it's hard to kind of, it's, I think it'd be hard to do it with cold traffic without a really serious commitment to converting that cold traffic to, to hot traffic. But right now it's just kind of, I tweet about it every couple of weeks and that's, that's enough for now. Yeah. I mean, that was exactly the issue when I was trying to buy cold traffic to the course. It's like people yeah. trust me, which is why they buy it. And this guy selling an ad is just like, that sounds scammy. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to yeah. convert. Um, yeah. Uh, you, have you looked at what Alex Hermazi has done with his gym stuff? I've read a bit about it and he actually was the one who helped me clarify the way that I speak about this. I've read all of his stuff and Hormozzi reminds me a bit of Nassim Talib, which yeah. is, I really like his ideas. I don't know if I'd want to get a beer with the guy though, you know, like, yeah. but I like his ideas. <laughs> I, I um, love, yeah, Talib. I loved all his yeah. books and everything, but he's just become such an asshole. Like just that, that's my, negativity. I, I have that suspicion about Hormozy, which is I read his stuff and I'm like, this is a really good way to say this. This is really novel, but I don't know if I'd want to play around a golf with him, you know, like, yeah. So yeah, I've read a lot of his stuff and what he really got me thinking about a lot was he gave this analogy in his book, which I thought was so profound was if you want somebody to shop better at a grocery store, list all the ways that Colin could help somebody shop better. It's like he could fly there and do it with him. He could order from him online. He could write an ebook about how to shop better at the grocery store. Those are all solutions to the same problem. And so structure your solutions in a way that lend itself to re repeatability and high leverage rather than, you know, Colin flying to 50 people to go grocery shopping with him every week, you know? So he, he really got me thinking more about that. There's lots of ways to solve the same problem, which is how to grocery shop better, you know? So it's the same thing with 
with us, for example, and this is not straight from Hormozy, but our cabinets you can make in a lot of different places. And when we first looked at this, we're like, we'll ship them to people. Mm-hmm. We'll sell them wholesale. They'll buy them, you know, buy them from us wholesale. But what we realized was that was a pain in the butt and it's not a business that we want to be in. So what we did instead was we came up with a manufacturing and specifications packet that says, this is how you find a local manufacturer of our cabinets. Here's every single thing you need. You hit forward on this email and now you can get a cabinet shop 15 minutes away. And so I've solved the problem of where they're going to get the stuff to sell, but I don't have to build a shipping and logistics business, which is not a fun business that I don't really want to build anyway, but I've solved the problem of where the heck these affiliates get their, their cabinets from. So that's a very hormozy kind of concept. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, I think he's obviously very good at marketing, but I, I don't think all his tips are like applicable to all businesses. Like I think one of the things he does really good is like guarantees for all these gym owners. Like you're going to make more money. Yep. If you're like selling shoes, I can't guarantee you're going to make run like 50% faster or something, but yep. for your business in particular, it sounds remarkably similar. I liked his structure, his guarantee, even just thinking about the different types of guarantees, I thought was really interesting, right? Like if you, you know, he, he had that whole chapter, right? Where he had like 10 different types of guarantees. Even that is kind of like a guy who writes a lot of landing pages or whatever. Yes. I was, it was cool to see, oh yeah, I guess there's more than just a money back guarantee. There could be a X guarantee or a partial guarantee or, you know, I, I really like that section as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing, it sounds like you guys do really well is like scaling up your overseas teams. You know, how are you finding these folks? You know, what are they doing for you? Yep. So up, Upwork for sure. And then a lot of more recently online jobs.ph. Okay. Sure. Big, big fan. I is think it mostly it's a, Filipinos yeah. that you guys are hiring? Yeah. I've had really, really good success. There are at times cultural challenges in other geographies and the Philippines, I'm fairly I feel like I can do, I, I, it's a known quantity at this point because I've done it enough, but it's not exclusive, exclusively that. But yeah, I think I think that people, you know, I, I really kind of want to build, I think you were talking about this. Can we go on a little bit of a tangent? Yeah. Oh yeah. Feel free okay. to ask me questions too, as I'm okay. just like grilling you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> so I know you have your automation stuff and you mentioned a concept about a company that goes in for 10 grand for three weeks and does like a blitz on automation. And it's because people won't buy automation off the shelf. You kind of have to do some consulting along with the automation kind of thing. Yeah. I've really thought a lot about that with off uh, overseas help, which is so many people have the same sequence, which is they read a tweet, they go, I need to use VAs more. They hire one, they don't do it right because they don't have the kind of systems and the process and the kind of ecosystem, right? And then they're like, well, this doesn't work. And it's the same thing with automation, I imagine, which is like they buy the tool and they have no idea how to correctly use it. And then they're just like, ah, this is why I need an office manager. I'm canceling the contract, right? Yeah. And so I thought a lot about that in terms of different ways that I could like come up with hormozy like offers around offshoring where it's like, you know, pay me 10 grand and I'll do the system and the hiring or, you know, or don't pay me anything. Just pay me what I save you when I offshore these stably. Pay me half of what I save you. Hmm. And I'll do all the offshoring and build the system to get them stabilized within your business because you're using a $29 an hour bookkeeper in California. And that's crazy, crazy talk. You should be doing $9 an hour master's degree Filipino bookkeeper. And so just pay me, pay me half the spread, nothing up front. So I've thought a lot about like how to actually, you know, productize the service because just saying hire overseas isn't good enough. And just saying build a system and document SOPs. I'm a big like notion SOP guy too, but it's because I'm really lazy and I want to be able to just kind of like 
plug low-cost labor against Notion and have turnover or whatever it is as I'm figuring out who's good and who's not without me having to do like a five-hour Zoom with every $6 an hour person that we hire. You know, so I don't know what your thoughts are about some of the experiences that you've had, like selling automation to not quite ready yet business, even though, you know, there's a wonderful use case for maybe some of your products. Yes. Okay. So we spent a lot of time with this and this is like the goal for this year is getting better at, you know, outsourcing stuff and like bringing on delegation and people like that. So with formulated is our automation company. We stole this actually from Google. Google has like design sprints. Yeah, well, go yeah, into yeah. that's like, what I heard you talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of their teams or one of their startups would be like, basically just in bed with them and show them the value of design in one like small thing. And they would do it effectively at cost or free if it was one of their companies. And so we did the same thing with automation. So it'd be, it would, I can't remember what it was, $10,000, $20,000 for like three weeks, ten, which is basically around our cost. Yeah, you said we're paying folks. Yeah. And that just proves it out. And then like from there, you find like all these other high value activities and you go down and deeper. So as far as like you know, online jobs or hiring Filipinos, the, the three different buckets I've seen, and I've used most of them is like onlinejobs.ph is where it's like a marketplace and you got to go find the person yourselves and vet them and teach them and everything like that. The next step is Shepherd. So Shepherd, Marshall yep. Haas's company, yep. where it's like, they'll find you good three people. And then uh, you pay it up front three months, I think is what we paid them. Ends yep. up being like $3,000. And then like on the more managed side is Athena. I don't know if you've seen this, Athena Go. Yes, he, the guy who started uh, Thumbtack. Yeah. That's his his company. I haven't really played around too much with it. So there it's, it's all the same. It's uh, basically playbooks and hiring someone in the Philippines. And then instead of an upfront cost, they're charging you like $3,000 a month or something. So instead of whatever the end person makes like $1,000 and then they share a playbook and I think they have apps and stuff built on top of it. Oh, cool, um, I love that. Yeah, it's, I, I haven't done it. Other people have, and they all seem to you know, speak very highly of it. It seems to me like, and again, it's some some degree similar with automations, which is, I think if you just hire this type of labor without some of the, I kind of like consulting or process development, it's just going to crash and burn. And you're going to be like, this is so, you know, you, you really have to know what you're doing to use this tool right. But once you know what you're doing, it's a game-changing tool and you're going to use it in every single thing. But if you use it wrong, you're going to be like, ah, this is why we don't use these people, you know? So I, I really have thought a lot about how I could add value in terms of, you know, that because I'm such a big advocate. I mean, I, I love it, you know? So like we've had a ton of missteps where we've hired folks and they just didn't work out. Now we have yeah. some that are working out great, but like, yeah. what is your process from, you know, finding them in online jobs and like yeah. vetting them, making them jump through hoops and finding a yeah. good one? Yep. So the, the big, I mean, at every stage, you know, we could kind of like talk about it, but one of the big things that I found, particularly with onlinejobs.ph, you have to be really, really organized and upfront on your kind of, kind of funnel, <laughs> yeah. I would call it. Like I found this tool, W. I, I built this thing in Airtable to manage applications, but I actually like this other tool more, wrk.xyz. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, no. I keep reaching out to the owner because I really want to invest in it or buy it and bring it to SMBs, but he hasn't gotten back to me. But it's this, it's five, it's like five or 10 bucks a month per position. And it's essentially like a low cost applicant CRM. Hmm. And so I embed that link to kind of like a, a proprietary job board, so to speak. And I stick that on onlinejobs.ph and I ask all sorts of questions that I know will let me screen really quickly. So things like do a voice recording of two minutes. Like I found that alone prevents me from having to interview 50 people because yeah. I don't care what their background is. If I don't hear the level of English that I need, I don't even, I just, 
Thank you for applying. Thank you for applying. So little tricks like that, I found to be really, really impactful. Test projects, you know, that kind of thing. It's the Navy SEAL strategy, right? Which is the Navy spent like a billion dollars trying to find out how to find a Navy SEAL. And they did, you know, genetics and sports background or whatever. And at the end of the day, they were just like, the best way to find one Navy SEAL is to find 10 guys and beat the shit out of them and see who's standing up. Yeah. So it's, it's this, it's like, get 10 applicants and kind of just see who survives the, the, the boot camp, so to speak. That's really what I found to be best is to find one person, find three, you know, or 10. Or, so, so yeah, you end up just hiring up. like three to 10 and expecting most of them to turn out. Yep. That's, that's what I do is I hire three for one position usually. And then in many cases, given their cost, it's not that impactful. If, yeah. if I find more than one, that's really good. I find another role. I always have another role where that rarely happens or I just keep the best one. So and that, you know, once you bring them on, you know, what have you done for onboarding to make them more successful? Usually it's, it's either one of two scenarios, either it's like live meeting with them every day. And that's when it's a more ambiguous set of tasks where you don't yeah. have really developed processes or it's written, not video checklists and walkthroughs that are really, really intuitive. I found that I think like a lot of people on Twitter talk about like looms and stuff. I have not seen that those get used at all. I mean, like if it's a five minute loom video showing a task, I don't find them referencing it. Whereas if it's a notion checklist that has nine steps, they go one, two, three, oh, got to go back to two. Whereas I just, I find, you know, you can see who watches your Loom videos. I find these folks not watching the Loom videos, but I find them opening up Notion and clicking the quality control checklist, you know, with frequency, or you talk to them every day. Those are the two choices. So if you don't have a stabilized enough process to have a checklist, I just talk to them every day until I have enough of a process. But I found that that halfway where it's like, you're supposed to be saving me time. In the beginning, they're going to cost you more time yeah. if you don't know the process. You know, it sounds like I know you were talking about this. I think on a recent episode, right? Yeah, uh, we've been dealing with it. I feel like we've gotten a lot better. So I do the looms uh, for sure. You know, document tasks, and then I try to get them to write out the text version of it. And oh, then just, yeah, that, that's a good idea. A meeting yeah. with them more often is really the biggest solution that we found. And trying to get them to work our hours at least initially, so we could like yeah. interact more throughout the day. Yep. Uh, do you do you do Notion or Trainual? Yeah. 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 Uh, so I do that SOPs like with Loom initially. And then we also have Trello more so for developers and um, stuff like that. But yeah, I got most of this from the shepherd has a free course on delegation uh, that Marshall Haas made. Like, do you have any oh. good sources? Like, how'd you get up to speed on this stuff? A lot of trial and error, I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah, I, I think that's what it is. I mean, I kind of want to do, I, to be honest, I kind of want to do a class like a, a big class that's like really in the weeds with like, you know, plug and play template hiring document, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. I don't know what Marshall's free course is like, but it, I imagine it'd be something kind of similar. Yeah. It's worth checking out for sure. And if you wanted to go down this like managed service offering, like doing a class would be a way to get yourself like an order and teach one yeah. person and then, you know, kind of scale it up yeah. from there. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Like a little freemium kind of thing. Yeah. Like uh, done for you. Yeah. See, uh, so, like you've been pretty active on Twitter and uh, as am I, and I'm always like trying to get better. Like what, what's your process for using Twitter? Do you have any process? I think for me, um, using Twitter, especially given my prior career is a little bit new for me to be kind of like public and talking about, you know, working in public or whatever. So the way that I've made my peace with it is to think of it as like the way to get a thousand true fans. 
like the right thousand people, not yeah. a big audience kind of thing. And so things like this anti-franchise offer or other things that I might do don't require a large audience to be successful. And so I think I really try to generate and talk about things that might only land with 11 people, but they're the right 11 people, you know, they're LPs or they're, and so I think about it more as like trying to add value to a very specific part of the world rather than generate likes and, you know, do a controversy post. So I get more follow, you know, it's, it's, you know what I mean? I, I think that that's how I've, that's how I've thought about it is it's, it's, you know, sniper rifling more than anything else. So I might only have 2000 people, but I know that if I send a DM to one of those people, we're going to be able to get on a call. And if I got a deal or, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't know. How do you think about it? It's been like, I've dabbled in different things. I tried posting a tweet a day and I didn't see a lot of results from that. What works is seemingly is like threads, like telling yeah. a story really well, just instantly you get you know, an extra thousand followers or something. So just spending way more time to write, you know, a few threads, I think is probably my intention going forward. I like um, some of your, I read some of your playbooks is what you call them. When you break down, like those are, those are cool. So those I, I do for myself yeah. and they have good SEO and they last for a long time, but they don't blow up on Twitter as often. So like, I'm kind of torn on writing more long form stuff like that, or more like thread stuff that gets more eyeballs and brings more people in. But yeah, the it's, thoughtful people like the operating manuals more. The, the, the one thing that I've seen, I remember talking to somebody, I forgot who it was, but he was saying the real big way to get organic on Twitter is to have high follower counts comment on your stuff. Mm-hmm. Be- and, and basically it's in the comment section. Like if you can get sweaty startup to comment and say, this is dope or whatever people, you know, it's basically saying that that's even more important than like a retweet or whatever. So I thought that was an interesting, I try to comment a lot, um, with value, not just like great job, keep it up, but actually like add value commentary to, to the right kinds of people. I found that that attracts, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, I, I should do that more. I, I'm trying to like, produce more and like consume less, but uh, you got to consume some to you know, reply to people. For me, it's just too demoralizing. If I write something that I know is incredibly valuable and then like, it doesn't get any traction. Like yeah. I can't deal with that. Like I can't, you know, you write this like profound operating model where you're like, this is better than like an MBA and like, doesn't get anything. And then you make a fart joke and it gets like retweeted a thousand times. And it's just like, I don't know if I can deal with living, like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can't deal with the ups and downs. Yeah. I think there's just a lot of randomness to it. So I think that's why you have to produce like a thread a week. And then some of them take off, you know, two out of 10 or something like that. I try not to let it bother me too much. I try to mute them pretty quickly. So then you don't know as much, like how many likes or retweets things get. Yeah. That's smart. That's um, uh, really smart. Uh, you know, any questions for me? I've you know exhausted most of my questions for you. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, I guess one of my questions is, is I feel very lucky at this point, which is I have the luxury of time in that I'm not having to get dragged down into operational stuff directly, at least at this stage, broadly speaking. I also, like you, I think have access to capital, not just like 7A. I have, I have people who want to do stuff, you know, through affiliation with me rather than know, some sort of financial return, right? They just kind of trust my nose. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the big problem that I'm thinking about these days that I'd be very interested in your perspective on is how to get scale around the SMB main street 
as, call it asset class, even though that's probably the wrong word. But, you know, like how do, what are the answers to that question? Like there's lots of different ways to answer. One of the answers is search funds. You back somebody to go find a place to park your money, right? Yeah. That's a, the classic answer. Another is you don't invest directly in SMBs. You just do picks and shovel stuff. So that's what like my, I don't know if you know, but Cody and I have a holding company together. Cody cool. suggests, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 And so we buy stuff together and it's all picks and shovel stuff. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. directly because you can only scale so much by holding these things directly, but a uh, CRM for plumbers is scalable in the right kind of ways, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. So it's like, I'd be interested in your thoughts as to if I said like, Hey, Colin, I'm a family office. I want to put $50 million in play on in around this main street gray tidal wave, where should I be looking? Should I be doing a roll-up, pick one sector and just do a roll-up? Should I be, you know, like, how would you answer that question to, to get m- chips on the table in a real way in, in this gray wave, you know? Yeah. That's the question I'm thinking a lot about these days. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the question I think we're all thinking about. So we're doing this in software, which is, we're not really taking advantage of the gray wave quite as much. I mean, most of the people are buying from, they're not seven years old, they're not retiring. So we're scaling that up. But I think the other approach is just like what the Enduring Venture guys have done is like yeah. you you know, pick a few sectors, you buy platform companies, and then you approach rollups. You like put teams in place on those platforms and then yeah. go from there. And yeah. that's really how you scale up your, you know, your offering. And I think that's stolen from Berkshire, Constellation, or any of the you know, yeah. aggregators that have done this at a, a high scale for a number of years. Are there any other? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Do they? And I think I read a thread that it's Xavier, right? Xavier and Sieva. I like that the yeah. two founders over there. They, they're they're moving at a blistering pace. I think they just started like two years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. They've done a lot. Do you like that model given your background and experience? Like, do you like, would you like running that company? Yes. I, I don't what? like being involved in the day-to-day. I really yeah. enjoy talking with like founders and hopping from like one industry to the next. Like that is fun. Like that is yeah. what I enjoy doing. You say like yeah. dealing with customer service or like yeah. any of that kind of thing. I'm just not built for that. Um, yeah. Now, do you think, you know, I was talking to somebody with a similar background to you a couple, a couple of weeks ago and not, do, do you think that there's an opportunity for, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit, which is, I think the best way to call it would be like a growth equity company in this sector, which is things like providing equity for growth, maybe refinancing out 7A loans, just all sorts of kind of like niche kind of keep the operator in place. Here's some capital, some expertise, maybe some synergies, back office stuff, and kind of you know, hanging out below the lower middle market and maybe with some exit scenarios into the lower middle market. Do you think that there's an opportunity for that in this? Because I feel like I've tripped across a couple, but I don't know if that's actually a, 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 a good enough strategy, so to speak. So this is different than backing search funds? Yeah, correct. This would be somebody, so for example, Bob bought an HVAC company a year ago with a 7A. Okay. He's got a $29,000 a month you know, debt service that's covered but he's got a PG on it. And you come in and you say, I'm going to buy that paper. I'm going to take maybe 20% of your company. I'm going to own the note now. And you get rid of the PG. Hmm. It's a cor- it's corporate debt now. Yeah. I wonder if there's just like a negative selection bias there of the people that are going to take you up on that offer at you know, worst terms or because they're, the, yeah, <laughs> they're trying to get out of the personal guarantee. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, 
Yeah. I, I just like existing companies, not the search. So small businesses that need capital and expertise to grow. So like that's, who's investing in those? Well, Tyler Tringas, he is his Calm, Calm Fund. It's mostly targeting like software companies, but not exclusively where oh. they're effectively offering that. They'll buy out, I mean, they'll buy 20% of your company. Yeah. It's not that different than like a, was it Indie Capital, Indie, Indie.vc. Tried a similar approach. That sounded like their returns were actually good. It sounded like their positioning was poor. So a venture capitalist launched it and he just, his LPs wanted to invest in venture capital. They didn't like this like hybrid PE approach that he was trying to do. Yeah. I think that that's what I'm you know, moving towards is this hybrid approach, not like the kind of VC return the fund with any one of these kind of things, like a little more boring. The right? other kind of interesting one that I've seen, like if you had 50 million, you're trying to deploy it kind of in this space is you back search funds that are going to take a holding company approach and compound over the next like 50 years. And so there's some LP groups. I don't know if they want to, you know, say their name publicly. I could send it to you afterwards, yep. but they just back, you know, people coming out of Booth or Stanford or whatever that are more than just search, search funds. They want to buy one thing and then compound and buy the next thing with that capital. Interesting. Um, it's like almost, it's like, a, it sounds a little fun to fundy. Right. It's like they indirectly are getting involved in the holding company business. Right. Yeah. So there it's like one LP backing effectively. It's basically set up just as an operating company with committed capital, but with the eye towards compounding that, doing more acquisitions with debt or just cash flow over the next, you know, 50 years. Do you think that there's any model where you can directly hold these, uh, like these Main Street? Or do you, I, I can't, I haven't found one yet where you can be more involved. Like, I mean, you'd be, you'd be spending all of your time hiring operators, right? I mean, it's, it's limited by operational expertise, I think, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the only way to scale up is hiring all these operators, which it sounds like if you're friends with Cody, which it sounds like you are, like she's done yeah. that, you know, she's hired what, 25 operators in a pretty quick but period of time. But she's not playing in these kind of, I mean, she's doing things like la laundromats or, you know, not high execution risk type. I mean, you have to be really sector, you have to be really careful in what sectors you run that strategy. And maybe that's the best way to say it. And Cody has been, right? Yeah. She's not, she, you know, a podcast production studio operator is very different than a plumbing company operator who, you know, could rob you blind and you wouldn't even realize it because so much of their stuff is cash. I mean, just, you know, weird stuff, weird dynamics kind of industry. Plumbing's probably a bad example, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Cody. Cody does a lot of that for sure. That's that's interesting. I'm I'm just yeah, very interested in your expertise on kind of achieving scale in a sector that doesn't I think naturally lend itself to scale. Software does for sure. What you do. Yeah, uh, this is look so like Mark Leonard always studies these like other high performance conglomerates or aggregators. Mm -hmm. I think half of them are software because it easily lends itself to that. I'm not sure what the other ones are in the past. Uh, another operating manual I'm working on is like Cable Cowboy. Okay. Uh, like TCI was buying up cable companies and it, its peak is doing like one acquisition a day, but wow. that's, you know, a similar approach of just like roll-ups basically just doing the same deal over and over and over again. I heard you talking about this, but maybe you could give like, cause I'd be interested in taking it for sure. But the kind of SaaS acquisition strategy that I know you teach in your course, right? IndiePE.com. IndiePE.com. Yeah. IndiePE.com. Yeah, yeah. What is a profile of a target look. I mean, it seems that space lends itself to when I, when I think about that, I'm like, I saw a tweet once, it might've been you said, once you've bought a SaaS company, you'll never buy another company again. Like, 
I, I that keeps me up at night because I know how hard I work to do what we've done. I work like way too hard. Yeah. You know? It's not as people intensive, but this is basically yeah. what John Malone arrived at as well. Like the cable business had a lot of similarities before you know, software existed, where it's like recurring revenue, very low churn, very high margins. And that's kind of the recipe you're looking for, like different variations on that. You know, it's great. Software was probably better like 10 years ago when you know Mark Leonard started, whereas like people didn't realize how good of a business software is. And now everyone knows it's a great business. So you know, multiples are creeping up, things are getting more expensive. It's also way easier to launch competitors or like other software wow. companies. So another thing someone could do is like, where is, are there similar dynamics at play, but aren't super competitive yet? Aren't a bunch of PE firms playing? That would be another way to think about it. So I'm looking at other stuff that's not software, just, you know, as uh, looking for lower cost stuff. I think the thing you end up sacrificing is you could get the, you know, high recurring revenue, low churn, high margins. Yep. It often is like geographically locked or something. So oh, it, it's not going to like growth is generally what you're sacrificing where you're not so much in software. So like, what kind of businesses are you looking at? We're kind of opportunistic right now. I mean, part of the reason why I reached out to you was because I'm kind of thinking about like what, what we should, I mean, she's, we, you know, it's like, we can do whatever we want. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, it sounds kind of stupid to say that, but you know what I mean? Which is like, if we got really excited about commercial landscaping roll-ups, it's like, great, but put the deck together now, go do it. But I don't know if that's what I want, you know? So I don't know the answer. I, it, that's kind of why I reach. I'm like, I'm thinking about like, is it just taking minority positions? Is it training operators and taking a piece of what they buy? Is, you know, is it just B2B services that she can sell to her audience and you never actually buy these assets directly? Like that's what we're, we're, we're kind of flirting with. Up to this point, we've been opportunistic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the easiest way to do it is probably just back search funds. Like the terms are always what they are. You can move quickly on deals. You could deploy a reasonable amount of capital. Super interesting. So what, what's next for you? Uh, we're trying to scale up acquisitions. Yeah. We have a lot of investor interest. So like, that's not our biggest issue. I would say it's finding good deals mostly, you know, so just pound on the pavement doing that. We have a few in the pipeline that I, I think are going to close. We've had a bit of a drought here, but kind of goes in you know, leaps and bounds. Thanks so much for taking the time you know, today, John. You know, if people want to help you or learn more about you, where should they go? Sure. So if you want to learn about our anti-franchise offering, go to franchisedisruptor.com. We've got a little bit of a write-up there. And then follow me on Twitter. I actually don't know my Twitter handle. I think it's Matzner John. Um, I'm not sure. Or if you just put my last name into Twitter, John Matzner, you should find me. So cool. um, I've got a great link to all that in the show notes cool. as well. So awesome. again, I'm there. Um, Sounds good. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me.